Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. away from October 31st. And what do you think of when you think of October 31st? Yeah, most people probably think of Halloween and trick-or-treating. And However, for many Christians, and especially Protestants, it's better known as Reformation Day. Reformation Day, it's a day which commemorates the day that Martin Luther nailed his Uh, 95 thesis to the uh, castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, back in 1517, so about 500 years ago. And he was protesting against and seeking to reform uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And now, my disclaimer on that this week uh, is that I'm dissatisfied to say the least, when everyone says, if you're not a Catholic, you're a Protestant. We just kind of all get lumped under the category of Protestant if you're not a Catholic. But I want you guys to know, I want our church to know that all throughout history, since the apostles, there has been a faithful remnant of believers, and autonomous, regenerate churches. A lot of times we think the gospel was lost for, I don't know, a a millennium, from the 4th century to the 15th, but I think it's important for us to know that there was always faithful remnants of churches. And they often, during that Roman Catholic Empire stage, could not buy or sell or trade. They kind of lived off the grid. Because if you weren't a part of the state church, well, you were persecuted. You were also executed. And a lot of people don't think about this. But when the Protestants came about, what did they do? They also created their own state churches, and they butchered Christians. They hung them, they drowned them, they threw them off of hay piles onto large pointy sticks. And yet, it seems like we worship them every year, this time of year. I just want to throw that out there so we're reminded of the fact that the truth about history And these churches that existed were were persecuted. They were executed by Romans, Catholics, and and Protestants. And a lot of their writings, their sermons, they were destroyed. That's why we don't have a lot of history about them, right? Armies would come into their communities and they would just ransack them. 
and destroy them. And they were by no means perfect, but they were always mischaracterized and they were the worst about them if they had some sort of weird teaching or something. They would always pick that one and then emphasize it. And so that's something to think about. Uh, I guess I say that because I don't want to identify myself as a Protestant. I'd much rather associate myself with the Anabaptists or others like that, who were just Bible churches. <laughs> you know? And they, they took the scriptures, guys, and this is what they wanted to do. They just wanted to read them and interpret them as plainly as possible so that people could understand. They sought to be New Testament churches. But we don't hear a lot about that, so that's why... I mention it. I'm, I'm thankful for the reformers and how they contributed to soteriology and theology and, and, and their positive influences on Western culture, but I'm thankful for them in a limited sense. So I just want to bring some balance to that, <laughs> that thought, because it's, it's Reformation Week. Well, happy Reformation Week, Shadron Brian. Um, but what the reformers sought to do was to reform the Roman Catholic Church and bring them back to the Scriptures. Remember, they had placed tradition over the Scriptures. They wanted to get back to the Scriptures, and especially on the doctrine of justification, of soteriology, how to be... You can't blame Satan for everything, right? Sometimes it's our own fault. We forgot to charge the batteries. No, I don't know if it'll last or not. If it, does. if it doesn't, I'll just grab the red mic, guys. But... Anyway, the Reformers taught salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? We call those the five solas. Uh, the Reformers were heavily influenced by the book of Romans and what it has to say about justification. And rightly so, because nowhere do you find in the Scriptures such careful and articulate discussion or teaching on the doctrine of justification, as in the section of Romans that we are in, Romans 3.21 through 4.25. As we've noted, to be justified, I hope you're familiar with that word now, to be justified means to be declared righteous, to be acquitted of guilt um, and declared righteous, right? You're, you're in the courtroom, you're guilty, the judge right, throws the hammer down, now you're, un, you're not guilty, you're considered righteous. You go free. You're justified. If you're justified before God, that means you've been saved. You've been declared righteous. And His wrath against your sin has been propitiated. It's been satisfied. And the question we've been addressing is, is justification by law through works or by grace through faith? And as unrighteous sinners, we should desperately want to know the answer to that question. Is it by works or is it by faith? By grace or by law? This is eternal destiny defining stuff here. I mean, heaven or hell based on how you answer this, this question. But as we discussed last week, most people and the religious teachings of men will tell you that justification is a process. It's it's like a payment plan where you pay for your justification little by little over the course of your life through your good works and your religious works. But 
As the Apostle Paul has been teaching and only authentic Christianity teaches, and as the Reformers rediscovered and as dissenters always taught, the Scriptures teach that justification is a one-time act. It's a declaration by God declaring someone righteous. He declares the believer in Christ not guilty. And they are forgiven of sin and considered righteous in his sight. We call this imputation. He imputes, reckons, or credits that person with the perfect righteousness of Christ as a free gift. Chapter 5, we'll call it a free gift several times, which means you can't earn it, so therefore you can't boast. In chapter 4, Paul uses Scripture's teachings about Abraham a first Jew and the father of the faith, to illustrate this manner of justification, immediate justification. And he's demonstrating from Genesis that, from Genesis, from the book of Genesis, that justification has always been by faith. It has never been by works. No man, not even Abraham, right? Righteous, faithful Abraham, not even him, not even he could be justified by works by what he's done in obedience to any law, even God's law. And so God has recorded in Genesis this archetypal model of justification by faith in Abraham's life, and it gives us a clear chronological and historical illustration of justification by faith, and it's what we've been studying. So far we've seen that, number one, Abraham was justified by faith and not works. Abraham was justified by faith, not works. God declared him righteous in Genesis 15.6 at the moment he believed God's promise. The moment he said amen to God's promise, that's when he was justified. As Andy Woods says, at the very nanosecond he believed. God considered him righteous right then and there with an eternally unfading righteous status. The righteousness of God is a status God gives to men who believe. Notice what Abraham didn't do. Remember, Abraham did not have to get circumcised. He didn't have to get baptized. He didn't have to walk an aisle. He didn't have to say a prayer. He didn't have to practice almsgiving or make any sort of pilgrimage. He was justified, past tense, right then and there. And he he didn't do anything but believe God's promise to him. Trusted it. Considered it reliable. Relied upon it. And we see uh, this same principle in operation in the New Testament, right? Acts chapter 10. Gentile believers, uncircumcised, receive the Spirit of God and are adopted into God's family, given an eternal inheritance right at the moment of belief while they're listening to the gospel Peter preaches. After that, yes, then they're baptized. But we also see it in the clear teaching of Paul in Ephesians 1.13. He says, you you receive the Spirit the moment you believe, and then you're sealed again. So it's it's not just Genesis. This is New Testament stuff. It's the, the manner of justification, immediate. Secondly, Abraham was justified before circumcision. We covered this in verses 9 through 12. Many Jews in Paul's day, kind of like the Roman Catholic Church with their sacraments, they combined faith and works. So you had to do faith and works in order to be saved. They taught that unless you were circumcised, you could not be justified. You couldn't be saved. 
But as Paul correctly taught from Scripture, Abraham was justified 14 years before he was ever circumcised. So he was saved, he was justified while he was practically a Gentile still. And so uh, Paul simply called circumcision a sign or a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. So he already had it. This became the sign that he was righteous already. And because of that, he could then be the father of all who have faith, like us. I mean, if Abraham had to be, you know, had to exercise faith and do a work with it, well then, so would we. But the reality is, he did not have to do any works. Neither do we. Therefore, he's the father of us all in a faith sense. So the faith of Abraham excludes works. Number one, it excludes circumcision specifically. And then number three, he's going to explain how it excludes law in verses 13 through 16. Look at verse 13 with me. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. And so Paul now brings up the subject of heirship here, being an heir of the world, and, and how this couldn't have anything to do with law. Abraham and his seed, or it might read descendants in yours, translated as descendants, um, God said would inherit the earth. His seed would inherit the earth. Seed is one of those words that can be plural or singular, right? But uh, we'll talk about that. God promised Abraham uh, that his seed would inherit the earth or the world. And, and uh, specifically, we know that Abraham was promised the promised land. What they're fighting over today, right now, as we speak, as Israel invades Gaza. That's part of it. Actually, it's from the Euphrates River to the brook of Egypt. It's a lot bigger uh, in the Millennial Kingdom and what was promised. But we also know that uh, it wasn't just the promised land of Israel that was promised here. It says he's an heir of the world. So through the prophets and just by the nature of the promise, he would be the father of many nations. So not just the promised land, but the whole world was, it was understood from this promise. Uh, the promise in Genesis 12.3 had a universal dimension to it. He says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just Israel, but they're going to be blessed through him, through Abraham and his seed. Remember Jesus in Matthew 5.5 says, the meek shall inherit, not just the promised land, but the earth. There's a larger dimension to it than we usually think of. But the seed aspect is another widely applied part of the promise. At times, it's going to refer to Abraham's physical seed, his seed by blood, which would be the Jews, the Hebrew people. At times, it's going to refer to uh, the seed by faith, which is us. We're his seed by faith, descendants of Abraham by faith. Uh, sometimes it might refer to those who are his seed by blood and faith, Messianic Jews. But, so, uh, the, the last one is that it could refer to the singular seed, capital S, that is Christ. And Paul refers to that in the book of Galatians. So, it can have a both-and aspect 
to it. His seed, including Christ and believers, are going to inherit the earth. And uh, the world has been blessed through Abraham's seed already, right? But the prophets wrote about a time when national Israel is going to repent and the kingdom comes and Jesus sits on his throne and the whole world is blessed through that national Israel, a national redeemed Israel. We'll get to this in Romans chapter 11. So the whole world's going to be blessed through national redeemed Israel, believers from all ages, and, uh, and Christ sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Isaiah says, hey, you want a fun study? Isaiah 24 through 27. Isaiah 24 through 27. Read those chapters. Isaiah says, in that day, after the tribulation period, the vineyard of Israel is going to take root. It's going to blossom. It's going to sprout and blossom and produce wine. It's actually, Israel's actually going to do what they're supposed to do. They're going to fill the whole earth with good fruit. The borders of Israel are going to be extended as promised. The curse on creation is going to be lifted. You know, the gospel in the end is not just about sin, right? God, yeah, redemption's a huge part of it, but you go back to the beginning, right? What else has to happen? The curse on creation has to be lifted again. God's not just about restoring and redeeming individuals. He's about restoring and redeeming individuals and Israel and nations, the whole world, creation, restoring everything back to the way it's supposed to be. And uh, so the curse on creation is going to be lifted. Believers are promised that they will rule and reign with Christ. During that age, all the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to worship the King of Kings. And uh, they're all going to get along, even Egypt and Assyria and Israel. They're going to be one big happy family. Hard to believe, isn't it? But that's when the peace comes. Peace and righteousness will reign then. And uh, that millennial kingdom, by the way, for a thousand years is just the front porch to eternity on a new heaven and new earth. But there you go, right? The meek shall inherit the earth. That's part of the promise. But think about that promise of being an heir of the world. And now think about that promise being based on your works, on you being righteous enough. Are you going to inherit the earth based on your own righteousness? Think your righteousness would ever hold up? It can't be by that. The promise, if the promise is based on our keeping of the law or being good enough, we're out of luck. I mean... Us and everybody else. Because as Paul demonstrated in Romans 1 through 3, none of us can keep the law. We're all unrighteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. None of us does good. And so the promise cannot be based on law. Otherwise, no one one would even obtain the promise because we can't keep the law. James says, if you've broken one commandment, In the law, you've broken the whole thing. Therefore, you cannot be justified by it. Only Jesus kept the whole thing. So, therefore, it must be by faith. And if by faith, not by law, because faith and law are like oil and water. They do not mix. They do not mix. They're polar opposites. So, as Paul says, the law would void faith 
and the promise would be nullified because the law can't save. It cannot grant you the inheritance that, that you long for, to live with God forever on a restored heaven and earth. All it can do, Paul says, is bring about wrath. The law doesn't save. On the contrary, it brings about wrath. And that's something that the Jews should understand. Their failure to keep the law is what drove them into exile. And it's why they're so frustrated today. They didn't keep the law and should know that no one else could either. But they often taught that you're saved by keeping it. But like Paul says, the purpose of the law isn't a system for you to keep for your justification. Like, you don't, you don't look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh, I've kept this and this and this and this, therefore I can go to heaven. The point of the Ten Commandments is to show you who God is, who you are, and who you're not like, which is God, and so that you will actually look for a Savior. You're supposed to see, wow, I do covet, I have lied, I do hate my brother, so I have murdered, I do not love God, therefore I need a Savior. It's not a checklist for justification. It's a tutor, Paul says, to lead you to Christ, to lead us to Christ. And so the law, then, is not the basis of the promise, but the promise is the basis for the law. The law was given to support the promise. You see the law, and it points you back to the promise, the foundation of it, to stir up faith and reliance upon God's grace. You see, I'm a sinner, now I need grace. It's also important to note that the law came after the promise, hundreds of years after the promise. So, Abraham obviously could not have been saved by law. It wasn't even a thing yet. It wouldn't be around for several hundred more years. And so thus, at one point, there was no law. And Paul says, where there is no law, there is no violation. There's no transgression of it. That doesn't mean that when there was no law before Moses, that there was no sin. There was always sin. There was sin in the Garden of Eden. But God gave the law so that we would become aware, more aware of our sin through our obvious transgression of it. Right? Our disobedience to it. Transgression and sin. This is, this is really neat for, for us to get a hold of in our minds. We need to understand the difference here. Transgression and sin are not synonymous. Sin could be defined as anything that goes against God's revealed character. Transgression could be translated as overstepping or defined as the violation of a clearly revealed law or command. So sin is always present even if there is no law. One may know or may not know that one is sinning. Transgression implies that a specific law has been given and that it has been broken. It's been overstepped. They've crossed the boundary. So think of it this way. While your children are growing up, they're going to do a lot of things that are wrong. And they don't even know it. They didn't know it was wrong or they weren't thinking about it. But when you find them doing something wrong like that and they're totally ignorant of it, what do you do? You go and you talk to them. You don't, I hope you don't discipline them right away. Now we're not perfect parents, right? But the idea is that you'll go to that child and you'll instruct them, and you'll teach them why what they did was wrong. And then you'll 
they'll, you'll give them a command. Hey, don't, don't do this again now that you know better. And then what happens when they hear that command, don't do this, what do they do? They do it, right? Because they're sinners like us. I'll tell you right now, don't think of a pink basketball. Quit thinking of a pink basketball. That's all you can think of, right? It's kind of what the law does. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then the sinner, the sin nature, just wants to do it. We'll get to that in Romans 7. But before the command is given to your children, right, you're more merciful because they didn't know. They were ignorant. They weren't thinking. But once they know and the clear line is drawn and they overstep it, then what happens? It's kind of like what he says here, it stirs up your wrath, it stirs up your anger to discipline the kid, right? Before, more merciful, but now they have the law. That's what happened with Israel. It stirred up wrath, it brought greater accountability for Israel. And like I said, it's not only that, it's not just greater accountability, it stirs up the sin nature as well. Actually, in Romans 7, Paul will reveal how the sin nature uses the law as a base of operation to actually increase transgressions. Transgressions increase. If the law says, thou shall not, the sin nature says, oh yes, I will. If the law says, thou shall do this, the sin nature says, I don't think so. Paul says, I didn't even know what coveting was. You know, Paul, the law said not to covet, and now here I am coveting everything. So, that's the sin nature at work. That's how depraved we are. But this distinction between sin and aggression is important for understanding the purpose of the Mosaic Law. It was given to increase transgression, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Never to save. Never intended to save. Look at verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed. You might underline that one. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. So, since the law only increases transgression and wrath, we must look to the promise of God in Christ by faith. In this way, the promise will be guaranteed to all who are of the faith of Abraham, Jew or Gentile. It's guaranteed because it's by grace through faith. If it was based on law, no one would obtain it. So, fourthly, we see Abraham justified apart from sight. Verses 17 through 25, we finish the chapter. As it is written, we find it, it's kind of in the middle of the verse here, right? As it is written, a father of many nations, it's kind of in the middle of a sentence, what I meant. But a father of many nations I have made you in the presence of him whom he believed. Even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which he had spoken. So shall your descendants be. And without, look at this guy's faith, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, 
in the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Right, so Paul concludes his exposition on justification by of of justification by focusing on the nature of Abraham's faith. He was justified apart from sight. It had nothing to do with what he could see or what was humanly reasonable. There are three descriptions of his faith that make it sightless. Number one, Abraham believed in an all-powerful God's promise. An all-powerful God. This is the invisible to us creator God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that don't exist. That's a powerful God. That's a God who can do anything, if he can do that. In essence, we could say his faith was in the creator God of Genesis 1 and 2. He understood Genesis 1 and 2 literally, plainly. That God could create everything we see from nothing. No pre-existing matter. He created it. The cosmos, the entire cosmos, the universe. All material. And he creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. I've told you the story, I think, of the, the scientist who approached God and said, God, I can make a better human than you can. And God says, okay, let's see what you got. And so the scientist reaches down and he grabs some earth in his hand, right? Because God created from the dust. Well, the scientist reaches down and grabs some dirt and God says, whoa, 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 get your own dirt. Get your own dirt. Why would God say that? Because man can only create by working with what God has already created. God created everything from nothing. He speaks and things come into existence. Let there be, and it just happens. He doesn't have to clap his hands to turn the lights on and off. He breathes, and things come to life. Life comes from God. But secondly, Abraham believed despite impossibilities. Despite impossibilities, when God promised Abraham that many nations would come from him, he was well past his childbearing years. His name means father of many nations, but he has no children. People probably had to make fun of him, and he probably got tired of the question, how many kids do you have? Because it was always none. At age 75, none. When God made the promise, he didn't have any. At eight, in his mid-80s, when God reaffirmed the promise in Genesis 15, God said, I have made you a father of many nations, past tense. He still had none. At age 99, when his body was as good as dead. Don't you like that? Age 99, his body's as good as dead. And then you couple that with the deadness of Sarah's womb. They're doubly dead as a couple. She's been barren her whole life. He's 99. She's well past childbearing years as well. He still had no children. 99 years old, no children, yet he's the father of many nations. Yet, look at this, also, in hope... Believing against hope, 
against all human reasoning or reason for hope, humanly speaking, he believed. He believed God was going to answer that or fulfill that promise to him. No one in their right mind would have said, Abraham, you can still have children. Even more impressive is the fact that as time went on in Abraham's life, his faith only grew stronger. Did you catch that? Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, giving glory to God. But he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. His faith glorified God. He was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. You know, sometimes when when we're waiting on God to do something, I think our faith grows weaker. We start to question God and we become cynical. Months and weeks go by and maybe years go by and we quit praying about it and we just kind of clam up. We don't even want to talk about the issue anymore because it's just been so long. I'm so sick of this, dealing with this or that. Abraham's faith it says, grew stronger as his circumstances became more dismal. He just thought, the darker things get, the harder things get, I know God is going to be even more glorified when he fulfills this promise. That's a powerful example to emulate, isn't it? 25 years he waited. I have trouble just waiting a few months for God to come through on something. 25 years. The less possibility there was that he would have a child, the more he believed God would fulfill it. Talk about a man of faith. That's exactly what happened. At the ripe old age of 100, he bore his first son, Isaac. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. Why laughter? Because it's kind of funny. 100 years old, he has a kid named Laughter. Like, this is just messed up. And it's also Laughter because Sarah, right, she laughed at the thought that they would have a kid at their old age. And it was a cynical laugh. And God said, why are you laughing? I can do anything. She said, I didn't laugh. And it was like, God, God knew her heart. Can't hide anything from him. But there they are, 100 years old, had their first kid. Some of you guys are thinking, well, what about Hagar and Ishmael, right? Sarah once talked Abraham into trying to have a child through her maidservant, Hagar. And so by their own efforts then, remember, Abraham wasn't perfect, and his faith grew stronger, but it doesn't mean it was perfect, or they didn't have hiccups. Along the way, it says they they tried by their own efforts to try and fulfill this promise themselves on their own. And what happened was that Ishmael was born and it created a mess. And we're dealing with it today, aren't we? Who are the sons of Ishmael? Who claims Ishmael as their promised child? Muslims. And Genesis says that Ishmael is going to be a great nation as well, and he's going to be a wild donkey of a man, and he's going to live next to his brothers, and he's going to give them a whole hard time as, as long as he's, as he's around. He's going to stir up trouble. He's going to live in hostility towards his brothers, Genesis says. 
And so what we see in Israel today with this holy, uh, if you want to call it a holy war, it's more like a terrorist war between the sons of Isaac, the sons of Ishmael. It's a spiritual war. Cosmic battle. And there was one point, by the way, where Abraham tried to present Ishmael to God as the promised child. Remember that? He said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Let him be the one. And God says, I don't think so. Because that's not my plan. You guys left my story and you tried to write your own. And I think some people are going to stand before God and he's going to say the same, they're going to say the same thing. Let my religious works, let my efforts, let my good works live before you. Accept these. Welcome me into the promise based on my effort. And God's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. They'll be denied as well. Why? Because natural human effort to obtain the promise isn't enough. You cannot be righteous enough. You cannot be good enough. The promise tells us that it requires supernatural power and grace. That's why God waited until they were as good as dead to give us an illustration of this thing of salvation requires supernatural power and grace. I can preach the gospel to you all day long. I can give you the clearest sermon on justification, but unless the Spirit of God goes to work in your hearts, you will not believe. It requires supernatural power. If we could do it on our own, again, we would get the glory. We could boast. But it's by faith, therefore it is by grace, therefore God gets the glory. And therefore, the promise is guaranteed. Think about this too, Jesus Christ, he was born supernaturally. He's the ultimate promise child. He was born supernaturally through a virgin. It's amazing, isn't it? The typology here that we see. But the story of Abraham, I think, and Sarah is a paradigm of how God works with people to strengthen their faith. This is a sidebar application. But God is going to strip you of things in this life. He's going to strip you of some relationships, jobs, maybe your savings account, your health, your possessions, things you rely on. He's going to test your faith. He's going to do it because he wants to test your faith and he wants to grow your faith. Sometimes we wonder, I think, why we go through difficulties and unpleasant circumstances and why God's taking so long. And it's because he wants to demonstrate his power. He wants to bring you to a place where you must rely on him alone. He's going to do that in your life. You can do all the right things in this life to, to guarantee a future and prosperity, and he's going to strip it from you. He might just do that. Because he knows that your faith, faith is way more important than anything else. He 
He might actually spark faith for the first time in your life through that trial. And he'll grow your faith through that trial. That's what he does. So do you trust him in your trial today? What trial are you going through? And do you still say to yourself, God is good. He's all-powerful. He never leaves me, never forsakes me. He's going to accomplish his will in this. Or have you kind of grown cynical? It's a good question. If your trial, think about this too. If your trial ended today, would you be satisfied tomorrow based on how you responded to it? Did you actually exercise faith that time, or did you just kind of grow cynical? It's a question I've been asking myself. But let's be challenged by Abraham's example. Abraham waited 25 years for Isaac to be born. Not once did he possess the land or see the nations blessed through him during his life, and yet he believed. And one day he's going to rise from the grave and he's going to inherit the earth with Christ and the rest of his saints. Amen? Well, Paul applies Abraham's faith directly to believers in Christ at the end of this chapter here, verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification so God credited righteousness to Abraham when he believed in God's promise Abraham knew the good news of a savior who would come through his line and while he looked forward what do we do we look backward by faith to Jesus Christ's death on the cross for us where he died for our transgressions and the resurrection it says was for just our justification as well. It was kind of like I like to think of it of God's stamp of approval on justification by faith. Like there you have it, paid for in full. And for the most part that ends this section on justification and we moved into the benefits of it in Romans chapter 5. I just want to close with a benediction from Jude 24 through 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Thank you.